This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's 2018 election will be the first of its kind because the state's 1.2 million unaffiliated voters can take part in the primary without having to sign up with a party. At least that's the idea behind a new state law. But Republicans may cancel their primary, something this new law also allows. The GOP would instead hold caucuses, which only members can take part in. GOP leaders will vote Saturday on this question. To talk about that and the crowded gubernatorial field, I'm joined by state Republican Chairman Jeff Hayes of Monument. I'll say that we spoke with the Democratic chair yesterday on the program. And Jeff, welcome. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. So some Republicans argue this semi-open primary takes away the party's right to choose candidates who will stick closely to its policies and beliefs. One opponent of the idea told the Denver Post, letting unaffiliated voters in would be like letting the New England Patriots choose the Broncos quarterback. Are, Are you at risk of losing the party's values by letting in unaffiliateds? No, I don't think so. Uh, There are several, well, scores, hundreds, thousands, millions, maybe unaffiliated voters that really lean toward us anyway. They just don't like to be identified with a particular political party. And I look at that as being a challenge from our perspective uh, to bring them back. There are people that have left our party because of, you know, one reason or another. And I think we need to give them something to believe in. But regardless, the unaffiliated voters make up over a third of our electorate. We are... um, We're silly if we don't go try to listen to them, to understand what their concerns are, and uh, to help them understand how their concerns and their needs fit with our values as Republicans. Do you think that it will change the the outcome of a primary in some tangible way? It could. It depends on how many of those unaffiliated voters decide to participate in our primary and how effective our candidates are in messaging and essentially recruiting those voters. I mean, it sounds like it's an experiment, And you don't necessarily know what the outcome will be. No, I don't. Uh, You know, I do disagree that it's an existential threat to the party organizations. I think if you look at other states that have even more open primaries than we have, their party organizations have thrived. Probably the bigger threat to the parties and and the goodness that the parties do provide, because it's essentially an organization and a training, a logistics uh, body that does program management instead of project management. And I don't mean to speak in jargon, but if if you look at the candidacy or a candidate, it's kind of a project, getting that one person elected. The party pools resources. It, it, it combines and makes things more efficient for a block of people that are pretty like-minded to get candidates elected. So for those unfamiliar with the new law, here's how it works. Before the primary election next June, unaffiliated voters will get two ballots, one with Democratic candidates, the other with Republicans. And if they want, they can choose one of the party's ballots and vote in that election. Mm-hmm. What they can't do is mix their votes, that is, vote in some of the Republican races and some of the Democratic contests. Uh, there's been no move in the Democratic Party to opt out of this open primary. Uh, the new law requires a 75 percent vote of the Republican Central Committee uh, to circumvent it and do instead right. caucuses. Do you think that is likely to happen Saturday? Well, if I can just clarify, the caucus and assembly process for both parties will remain intact. Nothing's going to change that. You're still going to meet in February at your precinct caucuses, elect delegates to the county and the state assembly. So that process is is going to remain regardless of what happens on Saturday. But um, I don't think that we're going to be able to get 75 percent. 
it's difficult to get 75% of the people to agree that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. So that's a pretty high bar. <clears throat> but uh, we are going to have discussions. And I think that's that's really important for our group or for our party. They want to, We have voices that need to be heard. We have people that want to express themselves. And as the state party chairman, I think it's my job to facilitate those conversations because the more information people have – the more likely they are to not only make a good rational decision about the direction, but also to feel like that their voices are heard and, and you get buy-in for whatever the decision is. But you don't think that the GOP will clear that hurdle and thus I don't think, its primary I don't think, think this, will be open. No, I don't think there are 75 percent of the votes in the Central Committee to uh, do away with that because there are people in the Central Committee, a lot of them actually um, probably voted for Proposition 108. I don't know how many. Obviously, we haven't taken that poll. But and Do you um, think that was with the idea of moving the party to the center? I don't know. That's probably driven by uh, different people's individual motivations. You know, we have our caucus and assembly processes, and there are a lot of people that don't like caucus and assembly. They, they don't like the way it's run. They don't like the way the uh, the outcomes have been. So they wanted to have a primary. I think a lot of unaffiliated voters felt like if I'm a taxpayer and I'm paying for this, uh, you know, through tax dollars, then I need to have a voice. I understand that rationale as well. Because not as many people show up to a caucus uh, as No, I think historically it's about 7 percent. Yeah. So the idea of the state GOP possibly excluding voters came up in a different way last year during the presidential mm-hmm. nominating process. The party voted not to have a straw poll in the presidential race, and all of Colorado's convention votes went to Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Donald Trump claimed the whole thing was rigged against him here in the state. Uh, does the majority of the state Republican Party support President Trump today? Yeah, I think so. And if you look at polling across the nation, the people that supported him still support him. Uh, He's got some pretty devoted followers. Uh, We have a certain percentage of Republicans that don't like the president. I think you find that in just about any electorate. You know, the Democrats had the same thing, obviously, with Bernie Sanders versus Hillary. They were divided in their loyalties as well. And I think you still see those same divisions. So, um, but yeah, I think in general, people are supportive of the president because he's starting to deliver on some things like taking better care of veterans. You know, we're seeing fewer border crossings. We are um, really, I think maybe the most important thing is that the economy across the country, the business climate is being much more positive. We're seeing job growth. We're seeing more optimism among people about their financial futures. Hadn't so, jobs been growing for the many years prior to his election? Well, and don't let me misinterpret uh, any of that. You know, the president should not have a tremendous impact on the economy. That means that you're basically taking away the free market. But the attitude of America first, the attitude and the um, anticipation of doing significant tax relief for the middle class and American workers, bringing money for investment dollars, dollars back from overseas. I mean, these kind of things, they create a sense of optimism that carries through the economy that you cannot argue that that was present in the Obama administration. A compilation of dozens of polls by the website 538 finds President Trump with only a 39 percent approval rating. Uh, Will the president be a help or a drag on Republican candidates in 2018 in Colorado? I think it's too early to say. There's so many things that have to be done. You know, if we get um, if we get a victory in the significant tax reform, I think that's going to send um, shockwaves throughout the electorate because it's going to impact positively everybody in the economy. You know, if we can get traction on 
uh, repealing, overturning, modifying, <laughs> significantly improving Obamacare, for example, uh, the Affordable Care Act, then I think that's going to um, tip people our way because it, it, the current situation is unsustainable. And, and and it's hurting a lot of people. And so there, that's probably the biggest uh, level of griping that I've heard from the Republican electorate is our inability to make significant change in the Affordable Care Act. What do you make of that inability? You've got control of the U.S. House, of the Senate, and of the White House. Well, there's a difference between arithmetic and reality. You know, the, you had, um, for example, Susan Collins, uh, Senator Collins, she didn't vote for the Repeal Act. Uh, I believe it was in 2015, even when there was no hope that Barack Obama was going to sign the bill. So now you go from 52 to 51, and you have certain senators that if it's not perfect, they're not going to vote for it. So now you're down to 50 or 49, and the Democrats are are holding firm on their side. You're not going to get any converts from their side. So uh, the arithmetic versus the reality and the personalities involved, uh, they're two different things. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Jeff Hayes, who chairs the state Republican Party. Yesterday on the program, we heard from the state Democratic chair, and that conversation lives at cprnews.org. And uh, moving on particularly to the 2018 governor's race here, where uh, Republicans have announced seven candidates and yeah, several... And Ryan, there's room. You can jump in the race. If you, it's not too late. <laughs> so in other words, you expect <clears throat> that number to grow, do you think? <laughs> it might grow, yes. Yeah? Have you talked to people who are going to increase it to eight or nine? Uh, you know, it, it, it'll happen. It'll happen. It'll, it'll okay. happen when it happens. I'm not privy to say. And how do you as party chair keep them from ripping each other to shreds and weakening the final Republican candidate against the Democrats? You know, I, I heard uh, my colleague Morgan Carroll's uh, interview, and I think she's been pretty proactive in getting the candidates to not beat each other up. Our candidates themselves thus far have been pretty good about self-policing. I think they realize how distasteful they can be. Um, the message that I've been trying to convey is not so much to the candidates, but really to our electorate. Don't tolerate it. You know, demand that the candidates talk about themselves and what they're going to do, because if you respond positively to their negative attacks, you're giving them positive feedback. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're encouraging them to trash their opponents. And, and uh, Are, are you sort of standing tall with a, with a big stick, Jeff Hayes, and, and imploring them to remain positive, or are you relying more on that self-policing? I'm point? relying on self-policing because I feel, I feel like that is a— How uh, Republican, right? To well, we do have a little bit of rebellion in our genes over on the Republican <laughs> side, and they don't like to be told what to do. But— um, you know, if the if the voters, if our Republican electorate awards or rewards, excuse me, is a better word, rewards that type of behavior, we are going to get the kind of candidates and the type of government that we deserve, not what we want. <clears throat> and so it's up to the voters to really insist that if we've got candidates that are going negative and they're not talking about their own plans and their own vision – well, they, they need to correct those candidates. When you talk about vision, I'd like to use that as, a, as an entry point to talk mm -hmm. about issues. What, what issues do you think will dominate particularly the governor's race in Colorado? Well, we're still quite a ways out. You know, I think that um, schools and school choice 
is something that's very close to uh, people's hearts. You know, they they are concerned about our school performance across the state. Uh, it there's some regional issues. Water is always an issue in Colorado. You know, the eastern uh, eastern plains are very concerned about water, and transportation is another issue. In general, those can uh, kind of be lumped under economics. You know, uh, there are elements of the Colorado economy that are doing very well. I think people would like to see that sustained and improved. And you say transportation. Uh, what you often hear from, say, the current governor is that there needs to be more money in order to make roads less crowded. What do you say? Well, nothing is free, that's for sure. And there are tough choices in governing, uh, in governing. Um, whether you're in the legislature and you're trying to pass bills and trying to get cooperation, not just from the other side, but also from your own folks. Because people that live in Fort Morgan have a very different perspective than those that live in Castle Rock, for example. We have different issues. And, you know, when I drive up to Denver, I feel the pain of the I-25 corridor. But we also have to get our crops into the markets from the eastern plains. And so, um, you know, I'm not a policy guy. That's not my job. I do trust our legislators, uh, even on the Democrat side, I believe that they do uh, want to work for the good of Colorado. The thing that I think is a big challenge for Colorado, you know, we are the eighth largest state geographically. We are probably one of the most diverse states in the mountain regions, the western slope, the eastern plains, the I-25 corridor. We all have such uh, different parochial concerns. And that really requires a lot of leadership, not only from the governor's position, but also internal to the legislature to figure out how to get rid of those parochial concerns and serve the greater good. Let's look at one of the Republican candidates, uh, George Brockler. He's district attorney in Arapahoe County, prosecuted the Aurora Theater killer. And uh, he has identified himself as one of the more conservative candidates in the race. Uh, do you think that he can win with these unaffiliateds added to the mix? You know, I cannot swing at that softball you just tossed me because, I, and I was actually joking with George. I said, you realize if I get an eyelash in my eye and I kind of look like I'm winking at you, people are going to think that I favor you or any other candidate. So um, I, I'm going to have to play politician and deflect on that question because uh, I think a lot of our candidates have an opportunity to win. I think they uh, they bring different skill sets. They bring different perspectives. And it's just going to be up to them to run good campaigns, to message effectively, and finish the race. That's one of the challenges as well. So I, I, I hate to be so deflective, but if I say too many positive things about George or Doug or or Vic or any of them, I'll exclude somebody else and people will think I'm playing favorites. And I am absolutely adamantly opposed to putting my thumb on the scale. What do you mean finish the race as <clears throat> difficulty just briefly? You have to raise money to have enough funds to do those last minute mailers to buy the TV ads or the radio ads or uh, to hire the staff. You know, you have to be able to finish the race financially. You also have to be able to have enough energy and passion to be able to continue to engage voters in the last minute because most people don't pay attention until the very last minute. So there are candidates that they start out early and then they fade. And, and that's part of victory is being able to you know how football teams will hold their hands up in the fourth quarter. You know they're going to have to they're going to have to finish the race, and uh, time will tell as to which one of those candidates actually does that. And I want to point out that it's not just the governor's office that's at stake. The legislature's up mm -hmm. for grabs too. Democrats hold the majority in the House, but your party has a one-vote margin in the Senate. And we're coming up over the next few years on reapportionment and right. redistricting, where congressional and legislative districts are redrawn. 
So if you've detected at all uh, a theme of sports metaphors in, in Jeff... <laughs> That's my strike zone now. <laughs> Hayes' comments, uh, I want to ask you that um, about an item on your LinkedIn site. Mm-hmm. I noticed that you were a kicking consultant for the Denver Broncos. I was. And helped them to a conference championship by increasing their punting and kickoff performance. Well, I would like to hope that I... Added to their success. We were one bad game away from going to the Super Bowl. That was Ben Roethlisberger's rookie year, and we lost. But, um, yeah, I had the real honor of working with Jason Elam. Jason is an incredible human being. I mean, he's a commercial pilot, phenomenal athlete, great family man, just a committed person in so many different areas. Uh, that, that was a real blessing for me to get to work with Jason and really that entire organization. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they were they were competing for the world championship every year. And, and being serious contenders, they were well run from the top all the way down to the bottom. This is Elam, the place kicker. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's an honor. Jeff Hayes of Monument used to work with the Broncos. Now he chairs the state <laughs> Republican Party. He's also a former chairman in El Paso County and a management consultant. Yesterday, as we said, we spoke with his Democratic uh, counterpart. That's Morgan Carroll. And you can hear our conversation at CPRnews.org. <laughs> In the not-too-distant future, you might travel between Cheyenne, Denver, and Pueblo in a pod, flying through a vacuum-sealed tube at 700 miles an hour. Hyperloop seems like the stuff of science fiction, but Colorado has been chosen as a potential first route, making ultra-high-speed travel a reality along the front range. Shailen Bad is executive director of Colorado's Department of Transportation. Welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great to be back. And we'll talk about uh, Colorado's uh, sort of landing in a, in a top position for Hyperloop in a moment. But for those not familiar with the technology, what would life look like with a Hyperloop? Yeah, so the Hyperloop is a pipeline uh, for all intents and purposes in which they get it down almost to a, a near vacuum and then they uh, they shoot these pods uh, through it. So, and the lack of air is what allows for incredible speed, correct? Right. So that's what makes it uh, a lot less resistance, uh, a lot less drag, and therefore it doesn't require as much energy to push through that. What, this would not be a windowed tube. It sounds like it might be a rather dark and isolating experience. Do you think so? Uh, you know, it would it would be uh, not open. Uh, when people first said this, they were like, oh, you'll get great views of the Rockies. And we're like, not really. <laughs> okay. But they might use like screens or lighting to uh, to change it a little bit. I see. To create more of yes. an inviting environment. And the speeds are in the 700 range. Is that right? What would that mean for crossing the state? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about 670 miles an hour, uh, over 1,000 kilometers uh, an hour, you're looking at, you know, just uh, what would be a few hour trip uh, getting done in 10 or 15 minutes. And so it has the potential to transform transportation, which is why uh, we uh, we have been uh, uh, pursuing it. So CDOT entered its Cheyenne to Pueblo route in the Hyperloop One Global Challenge. Hyperloop One is the company backed by Elon Musk. And the aim is to expand this technology around the world. Ten routes were chosen worldwide for additional exploration, including Colorado. If Colorado wins, what does that mean? Like, does does Musk write a check or or what? Well, you know, so winning uh, has been somewhat of a of a uh, amorphous uh, or unknown uh, entity at this point, and so 
we've been very clear that, look, we're not going to be the pockets uh, for this, that uh, we have our transportation funding challenges as it is. Uh, however, I do believe that there is the opportunity for a public-private partnership where when you have- We uh, hear about so many of those these days. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, you know, when, when you live in a state that uh, doesn't want to increase gas taxes or other taxes for transportation funding, you have to get creative in the way that you pay for transportation. And so we're hoping that there'll be a company out there that believes in this concept and wants to work with us uh, to help deliver this uh, new technology. And do you have some sense that Elon Musk might write a check? Uh, so so I want to just uh, clarify one thing. Elon, this Hyperloop was Elon Musk's white paper around how do I... Uh, he calls him now he has the boring uh, company, which is building tunnels. Uh, and so he's he's in and he's out. He's not involved with Hyperloop One. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Hyperloop One folks came from SpaceX, which is where the Elon Musk uh, tie-in comes in. I think that for all of this, it's just, can you make it pay, right? Um, people made the transcontinental railroad pay. Uh, people took a new technology called, uh, you know, aviation uh, and aircraft and uh, – and made that pay. And so that is a future model that is still to be determined. If Colorado doesn't win, and again, you say that winning is a little unclear, would CDOT still pursue this in some regard? Yeah. So so the, at this point, there were 2,600 entries from around the world. 10 have been uh, selected as, you know, let's, let's see if we can make this happen. Oh. Uh, so we're doing a feasibility study. We're the first one uh, in on a feasibility study out of this group of 10 to say, okay, what does this look like? So I feel like in some ways we've already won because, look, we've gotten uh, worldwide attention as, uh, as part of this. Uh, and we're going to pursue any technology that helps us move people and goods in a safe fashion. I want to say that USA Today estimates the cost of Hyperloop between Los Angeles and San Francisco would be $6 billion. Any idea what it would be in Colorado, what the price tag would be? So that's part of what the feasibility study is to look at. Okay, it's not a figure you have right now. We don't have a figure right now. And uh, there are lots of numbers that you throw out. Uh, Obviously, the the geography uh, between uh, LA and and San Francisco is a little different than the Eastern Plains. Surely. Uh, And so... Things can change, but that's one of the things we need to look at is, is it technically feasible and is it financially feasible? You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the executive director of Colorado's Department of Transportation, Shailen Batt. We are trying to separate reality from hype when it comes to Hyperloop. And of the 10 routes chosen, the Pueblo-Cheyenne route is the least populated. So it touched around 4.8 million people. Dallas to Houston would touch nearly 19. Mexico City to Guadalajara, 33.5 million. Is the Colorado possibility just a lot of hype? Uh, You know, I don't think so. And remember, it's not just about people, but it's also about freight. And so I-25 is an important freight corridor, part of a NAFTA corridor. If you just look at the truck traffic, the, the... the train traffic, the freight that is uh, in this corridor. I think that, in fact, you're much more likely to see a freight application than people at first because it's better to make a mistake with a load of coal than it is with uh, with people. So I would say that it's partly the, the population density. Uh, but the reason that Cheyenne is on the northern end of the terminus is because eventually they view a build out where you would connect Cheyenne and Houston. So I-80, I-70, I-25, I-25. Uh, down to a port, and so there's um, th- there's a there's a much broader vision, and again, we're not proposing to build all of it. We're talking about let's build, uh, you know, 
uh, Denver International up to, say, Greeley or Fort Collins to begin with as a segment Mm. just to see if it can work. So there have been numerous studies commissioned by CDOT on high-speed rail along Mm I-25. There was maglev technology considered along the I-70 mountain corridor between Denver and Vail, none of which has gone from paper to shovel. Uh, what's what's to say this will be different? Uh, I I don't know that it's going to be different. I think that's mm-hmm. why we want to we want to explore. I think that you know it is incumbent upon us to to take a look at uh, technologies as they come out and say, does this work here? Again, what I want to uh, what I want to be clear about is we don't know that this will work, but we don't know that it won't work. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody wants to say, hey, well, let's come and and work with you to build a segment, and we have a chance uh, to be a leader in this sphere. That we want to do it, but I think what is different about this technology is that unlike rail or some of the other advanced guideway systems that have been out there, uh, there is significant interest um, on the private side to being involved with this, and so the money has never really materialized uh, on the on the uh, on the other side. Other of the projects. Equation. So wait, you've had conversations with corporations in Colorado that have said. We're interested enough that there might be money behind Hyperloop. Uh, I, I can I can speak uh, uh, to a specific question uh, conversation I had with uh, somebody in the private sector in Washington D.C. Uh, when we were out there, um, you know, six months ago for this, who said the money will not be a problem. Uh, we'll be able to find private investors. So. That is, to me, the path by which this happens. The Colorado government is not going to write a check for a few billion dollars to make this happen. But can we? is there a public-private mar- partnership uh, where we can maybe see something like this happen? Now, to someone who has had the nightmarish experience of being stuck on I-70 in ski traffic, uh, help us understand why Hyperloop wouldn't work east-west. Well, it, it might work east-west. Uh, in fact, that's actually part of the ultimate build-out is you go from DIA uh, or Denver International, excuse me, out to uh, – up to Vail uh, in, in just, you know, several minutes. The The challenge is when you're, when you're trying to build a new technology, you don't pick the most challenging topography to start construction. Yeah, possibly in the country. <laughs> right. Uh, and so I, I think that this is something of, all right, it's a new technology – we're looking to build a, a demonstration track or a test track. Uh, and so if if we can make it work out in the Eastern Plains, then you would say, okay, now let's look at going to the mountains. Okay. But that's a sort of secondary route, you'd say. Right. I, I just, I, I don't know that uh, you want to you wanna try and build the first one of these up in the mountains. Hyperloop One CEO Robert Lloyd has said he wants three routes completed around the world in just four years. We've seen RTD's large-scale fast tracks project move its completion date decades, for example, in some cases in in Boulder. Uh, For such an ambitious project, do you think anything under a decade for completion is possible, even if it's a public-private partnership? Uh, you know, it won't work if we move at the speed of government, but it can work if uh, if all the right ingredients are there. And so I think at uh, Colorado DOT, uh, you know, uh, Governor Hickenlooper has given us the green light to, to really push the envelope on technology uh, and connected autonomous vehicles, new technologies that are out there. And so that's what we've been doing. And look, this isn't just something that we're having uh, taking a lark or a flyer on. Uh, we have significant transportation challenges in Colorado. We we have a system that was designed in the 50s, built in the 60s for a population of the 1980s. Uh, and uh, 
Um, you know, we're not just going to widen our way, uh, you know, for all of these highways, you know, to deal with the 21st century challenges. I also look at a company like Amazon. Amazon, you know, Denver made the list. Um, you for know, a second headquarters. For a second yeah. headquarters. Uh, and we're in there simply because we have things like interstates and mass transit and walking and biking trails that are out there. And, you know, the fact that we're in a global conversation around new technology, I I don't think it hurts uh, our prospects there as well. But goodness, if Metro Denver lands the Amazon headquarters, I-25 now is going to look like a vacation. Uh, Well, it can't get much worse. Uh, So... Uh, but again, I, I would say that, again, around connected autonomous vehicle technologies that we're pursuing, some of the things we're doing with uh, intelligent ramp metering, we're going to change the uh, paradigm of what a highway moves from 2,000 vehicles per lane per hour. You know, we could double that. We could triple that in the next few years. So I think that you can't imagine a future that involves an Amazon headquarters here with a current I-25 technology is going to change it. Thanks for speaking with us again. Thank you for inviting me. Shailen Bad is CDOT's executive director. The agency has teamed up with Hyperloop One to explore construction of an ultra-high-speed transit route between Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Pueblo, Colorado, eventually. Still to come, what happens to people lost in Colorado's wilderness? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you got lost in the wilderness, you might expect a big search operation. Rescuers, dogs, helicopters. Think again. The response can vary widely depending on where you're lost. Some people are never found. Writer John Billman has looked into what happens to people who go missing on public lands, including in Colorado. And he's on the line with me from Marquette, Michigan. John, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. You recently wrote about the disappearance in southern Colorado of an 18-year-old runner, Joe Keller. This was for Outside Magazine. Keller vanished in the mountains about an hour southwest of Alamosa on a July afternoon a couple of years ago. Tell us how, how prepared Joe was and what the place was like where he disappeared. Well, uh, you know, Joe physically was very prepared. He uh, was a, um, an exceptional athlete, and um, he, he wasn't planning on going out any longer than an hour. He was going to go out for a short workout before dinner, and um, what his friends could tell us was that, uh, you know, he, uh, the last time they saw him was on um, the main road up Conejos Canyon. So it's, uh, it's a gravel road, but, um, but you know, it's um, full of uh, people uh, trafficking up to go fishing and, um, and camping and recreationers. Um, so he was, uh, he was only wearing a watch and running shoes. He, uh, he didn't have water. He didn't have anything to stay out uh, overnight. Um, and, um, it just got strange because, um, they should have been able to find him immediately. Yeah. And what kind of search effort was mounted for him? Well, you know, at first they thought, you know, uh, a strong, uh, strong kid like Joe would just, uh, kind of, you know, stumble out of the, out of the mountains and, um, have a story to tell. Uh, so I, I, um, the, the initial search was conducted by, um, people staying, they were staying at a, at a, at a dude ranch down there. And um, the people at the ranch were the ones that uh, conducted the immediate search. They they took four wheelers up the road and, and were hollering and thought they would find him. Uh, then the uh, Conejos County Sheriff's um, officials uh, came on 
on site. And still, they, uh, you know, they weren't panicked. Um, they just thought Joe got a little turned around, maybe twisted an ankle, and, and he'd, he'd, uh, he'd walk out of the mountain soon. That is not the case, though. That, no, that is not the case. And so then, then the search uh, escalated and got more serious, and um, his family was called back from Tennessee, and they, they came up to the search. And um, they, they mounted uh, what was a pretty, pretty thorough, hasty search, is what it's called in search and rescue terms. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the hours went by, the days went by, and then uh, what happened is is not atypical in these situations. Is um, uh, they just they just ran out of uh, not only money and resources, but um, ideas of where they could look next. You write in in this piece that uh, go missing in in most Western states, and with the exception of maybe New Mexico and Alaska, statutes that date back to the Old West stipulate that you're now the responsibility of the county sheriff. Right. Um, And this case in particular was, I believe, in the Rio Grande National Forest. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And and you say that that's about this. The the county itself is like the size of some states. It's massive, right? And and and, um, it's not um, it's not a wealthy county. It's it's not a wealthy part of Colorado at all. And so it really does matter where, even within a state, where you go missing. Um, it's it's sort of um, it's sort of luck of the draw or the unluck of a of a of a, of a draw. Um, you know they just um, they don't have the kind of recreational traffic that some some Colorado counties have, and they just um, they don't have the funding, and they just um, they just aren't as ready for this kind of search and rescue operation as some places are. That's true of the sheriff's department. You also write that the Rio Grande National Forest has just one full time law enforcement officer. Uh, who was not, by the way, given clearance to talk to outside. And so did, did right. they ever find Joe Keller? They, they did. And it was, um, uh, as happens often, it was a volunteer, uh, um, almost not quite, but almost a year later, um, who uh, knew about the case and, and um, looked at some of the, the data that had been compiled by searchers previously and um, and he he had a hunch, and it turned out he was right. He he found he found Joe, um, but but this um, Ryan it, it very very quickly goes from goes from um, a governmental operation to volunteers to family to um, oftentimes no one. I mean it um, it uh, dwindles down to um, you know a hobbyist who who was out walking walking in the mountains. No, you say that uh, sixteen hundred people have gone missing from public lands without a trace. Where do you arrive at that number? Because I understand the record keeping really isn't all that good. Right, and if, and if I had to, to guess, I'd say that number is actually low. Um, there's a, a Colorado resident, David Polites, who, who's become quite renowned for his um, his research into. Uh, missing persons in the wild, and and this figure uh, this figure comes from David. Um, yeah, but but what's difficult about it is there there is no public database that allows um, anyone to go in and and sort of aggregate these cases that happen um, outside of an urban urban area. Um, there's a woman in Broomfield, uh, Heidi Streetman, who is um, petitioning uh, to to 
force uh, the Department of the Interior, Department of Agriculture to to build a database where um, uh, the public has some kind of a searchable um, 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 resource uh, to look into these cases and maybe get a better uh, better sense of, of the accounting. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with writer John Billman, whose piece recently in Outside Magazine is called How 1,600 People Went Missing from Our Public Lands Without a Trace. And you talk about the, the hobbyists who eventually join the search for the missing. At first, it's law enforcement whose resources are stretched. Uh, then sometimes it's volunteers, but interest can wane quickly. And uh, you write about someone with a bloodhound who sort of volunteers his sniffing dog for this kind of work, uh, often when a case has gone a bit cold. Yeah, Alan Duffy from the, he's from the Front Range as well, and um, um, you know he came in he came in uh, two and a half three weeks after um, Joe had been reported missing, and he was called in by uh, by the Alamos uh, uh, under sheriff, and. Um, yeah, he just uh, and, and what I do want to emphasize, Ryan, is that um, without volunteers, we, we would we would have virtually um, sometimes nobody looking for for these missing people. Um, it's really that that county-based model really is, is uh, it does it is successful often because of of these hardworking, dedicated, um, super uh, well-trained volunteers. Um, the problem is eventually, you know, people have to go back to jobs and families and lives. And, and Alan Duffy, um, he spends every moment where he's not at work uh, or sleeping um, looking at these cold cases with his bloodhounds. So how successful are searches for people in wilderness? Well, I, I think statistics would prove out that um, oftentimes they're very successful. Uh, most people are found. Um, it's, it's, the, it's those cases that defy all immediate logic that, that interests me the most. Um, um, they, they are more rare, but they do happen. And um, um, that's, those are the ones that I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about. And did you find a pattern in those cases? Is there something that if I'm listening to this conversation and want to make sure I'm not among them, disappeared in the wilderness, uh, that I should watch out for? Well, that, that's a great question, and I wonder that all the time myself. You know, they're, they're the basics that we're told, you know, um, um, check in with somebody, have the proper equipment, be ready for the elements. Um, I, I, some of these, Ryan, they're just, they're just mysteries. And I, and I think what I think about is that, that my GPS is not going to save me. Um, Why not? Um, um, I, well, I, mine sure is a battery draw. And so for one thing, if, if you're out there for very long with, um, yeah, my batteries are going dead. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, some, some of these cases, many of these cases, they're, they're very, um, very wise outdoors people, um, athletic people, people who know how to handle themselves outdoors. And, um, that, that makes these cases all the more strange. Huh. Okay, so checking in with someone, having the proper gear, but as you say, it's it's not foolproof by any means. The University right. of Colorado at Boulder is working on a system to find people who are lost using drones. Uh, are are drones like the, the the powerful new weapon for search and rescue? Um, I, that's that's an interesting question. I, Grand Canyon National Park is uh, is piloting, excuse the pun, piloting a new program <laughs> with drones. 
um, using them using them in a search and rescue uh, application. Um, and that's going to work well in Grand Canyon National Park, where they don't have the kind of uh, forest overstory that that some places in Colorado do. Certainly, uh-huh. many of the places in the Pacific Northwest have. And so, in some applications, um, you know, with a camera visual sense, a drone I think is a great tool. Yeah, but of course, if you've got a forested canopy, uh, that tool is rather limited. I think about the the folks, um, John Billman, who carry a card with them and they have paid into like a search and rescue fund. Tell us where where that fits in. Yeah, Colorado has been really um, on on the forefront of that. I think that's fantastic because that what that does is help pay for uh, these these largely volunteer resources and equipment. And um, I, I think um, I think all states should should do this. Um, and I think all people going out into the backcountry of Colorado should, uh, should participate with this. Yeah. And uh, in. is that an expensive endeavor? Not at all. Not at all. It's just a few dollars. Hmm. You, I think you said earlier that you, sometimes these cases of disappearances on public lands keep you up at night. Is there one in particular that sticks with you? Well, there there are several. Um, you know, it's a the, the one that is, that, and, I, and I talked a lot with um, Heidi Streetman about this. is uh, is a Mesa Verde, Colorado, Mesa Verde National Park case, and um, it was a man named Dale Staling who went missing in uh, 2013. And um, Dale Dale wasn't going out into the backcountry, at least not on purpose. Um, he was going on a walk from essentially the the park museum down to uh, the Spruce House on a, on a paved trail that was essentially uh, wheelchair accessible and um, thought he might go on just a little further and, and look at the petroglyph, and he vanished. And um, I know that uh, Superintendent Spencer over there uh, through all manner of resources at Finding Dale. It was, it was, it was priority. And, um, and he's not and been he found? Still could, has not been found. They rappelled oh. down cliffs. And the superintendent told me they, they came back with, with armloads of binoculars and purses and backpacks and things, none of them belonging to Dale. Very strange case. Very quickly, um, we have about a minute left. Is it possible that there's like a, some foul play going on here? Or this is just the nature of being outside in about 30 seconds? You know, in those 1,600 cases, um, David Polites and others have, have eliminated foul play. Those don't okay. fit the criteria there. Got it. John, thanks so much for sharing your reporting with us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate it, Ryan. It's John Billman of Marquette, Michigan, and he writes about people missing on public lands. We've posted links to several of his stories at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a tiny school district in southwestern Colorado surrounded by national parks and forests. But despite the stunning landscape, not enough teachers want to move there. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine visits the Montezuma-Cortez district. Dan Porter spent the summer like he usually does, trying hard to hire teachers. When I caught up with the assistant superintendent in mid-July... We're still looking for eight teachers. Porter started the summer looking to fill 30 vacant positions on top of five retirements. The number one issue is pay. 
their starting salary. 29 uh, nine twenty five. Two big districts nearby, Durango and Shiprock, New Mexico, pay $7,000 more to start. District officials say after salary, the top reasons for leaving relate to family issues, like spouses who can't find work in the region. Another major reason is stress. There's tremendous stress. When you are testing, 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 I'm responsible for these results. If I don't get these results... It shows up on your teacher evaluation. Relating to that... Lack of autonomy in the classroom, feeling like they don't have a lot of control of what's how to teach. The district is on the state's watchdog list test scores need to improve. Some teachers feel hamstrung by curriculum designed to boost test scores. But since school started, Porter's hiring problems have become even worse, the worst he's ever seen. Districts across the state are struggling with teacher shortages. In 10 town hall meetings this summer, people cited the same reasons for leaving teaching jobs. Low pay, stress, and the poor perception of the profession. Anything that makes it more affordable and helps with compensation is a solution that people would like to see us lean into. Kim Reed is executive director of the Colorado Department of Higher Education. She says the proposal for a statewide base salary was a popular idea, but there's no state money for that and no politicians leading the charge to change Tabor, Colorado's voter-approved restrictions on raising revenue. State lawmakers have asked for low-cost solutions to the teacher shortage. So things like loan forgiveness and more affordable housing for teachers have been floated. Commissioner of Education Katie Anthes agrees that the strict accountability system and testing are helping fuel stress. But neither Anthes nor Reed are calling for any big changes to those. Instead, things like stipends for mentoring, support, preparation, all of the things that would help teachers feel really equipped and able to do their incredibly challenging jobs. One thing that's worked, back in Cortez, Assistant Superintendent Dan Porter says a bill last spring that allowed rural school districts to hire retired teachers full-time without hurting their pensions. It's saving our tail right now. He's hired five retired teachers. The Public Employees Retirement Association estimates that so far, 18 rural school districts have hired a total of 36 retirees. Another lifeline for rural districts are teacher training programs that target career changers in rural areas, people like Patrick Armijo, who want to stay. I'm not sure how well I'm going to relate to the kids. Armijo was laid off as an editor at the Durango Herald. He became a summer candidate in the Betcher Teacher Residency Program. Most residents spend a year with a teacher before going into their own classrooms. But after a few months of coaching, Armijo was hired straight into the classroom because he had a bachelor's degree. It was a kind of financial lifeline that would work for me. Armijo spent a lifetime covering local and national government. So Montezuma Cortez High School snapped him up. But after a week in as a social studies teacher, he respectfully resigned. The trial-by-fire switch into teaching wasn't working. He didn't have the skills or the aptitude. In the first month, Assistant Superintendent Dan Porter has lost three other teachers. Two quit to work for more money in another district. To be able to compete for teachers, we're going to have to raise our salaries. Without money, state education leaders have yet to find a solution to that poaching problem. In Cortez, a classroom aide also left to go work for 20 cents less an hour as a Walmart greeter. The man told Porter it was far less stressful than being in the classroom. But Porter says there are teachers up for the challenge. The district is high poverty and it's diverse. He says it's a place a teacher can make a tangible difference. Looking for those people that have that drive in their heart. 
the other thing I would add to that is you want some of the best mountain biking in the world. You want some of the best skiing in the world. You want some incredible water, just lakes, those kind of things. Worth a place to come to. So anyone with a bachelor's degree who thinks they can teach high school social studies, there's a school district that really needs you. Oh, and seventh grade science is also open. I'm Jenny Brandine, Colorado Public Radio News. Finally, I want to encourage you to tune in tomorrow for the next episode of Breaking Bread. Coloradans come together around a dinner table to see if they can work through their political differences. Sandy Russell of Palmer Lake will join us again. She says the direction the country is headed under President Trump aligns more with her beliefs. I was reading where our president is already saying, hey, it's perfectly all right to say Merry Christmas rather than happy holidays and changing and all of that stuff. And that's very comforting to me. Just one of the voices you'll hear tomorrow on Breaking Bread from Colorado Matters. And we'll try an exercise with the group, one you can do at home to try and find common ground. I'm Ryan Morner. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us.